0: Beyond the News with Brian Lilly, News Talk 580 CFRA.
1: Great news out of Queens Park today. Kathleen Wynn is going to dip just a little bit less into your pocket for her bizarre ideology that she has been wedded to for far too long. That's right. They're backing away from procurement of new wind and solar. They're going to back away from spending billions of dollars building more power generation that we didn't need at huge cost, although it's not going to bring your bills down too much. We're going to hear an awful lot about that uh, coming up in about half an hour's time on the program. And we're also going to deal with the 49 shootings, 13 murders that we've had. we got Tom Adams coming up on the issue of the power generation, our hydro bills, and this latest sham by Kathleen Wynne to try and stay in power. Tom Adams, of course, an independent energy consultant, a guy who knows the the grid and the system far better than the premier. And we've got Senator Vern White, the former chief of police here in the city of Ottawa, on the gang violence and issues. Also, just confirming that we will have someone on the issue of official bilingualism in the city, that push happening. But of course, the big story today still remains fallout from the debate last night. I ended up uh, watching the debate here in town. One room filled with conservatives, one room filled with liberals, two very different viewpoints back and forth. You want to send me an email on who you thought won the debate? Go ahead. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. You still want to talk about that when we open up the phone lines later? You know the numbers when we get to opening up the phone lines, but you can email me now beyond the news at cfra dot com. But on the issue of who the biggest loser was last night, I say it was neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton this is a an issue of the moderator being the big loser the moderator being the one that stepped in it lester holt of nbc should have been almost a silent partner lester holt of nbc should have been there to be fair to both candidates. But in the end, he wasn't. In the end, he ended up going on Team Clinton's side. There was some good debate back and forth early in the process, especially when they were dealing with economic issues. And if you want my breakdown of of who won, who lost, Trump did really well at the beginning, the middle, Got kind of boring. Clinton did really well at the end. There you have it in thirds. Kind of shown in our poll today on CFRA.com who won. Last time I looked, it was splitting about a third, a third, a third. I'll update in a bit, give you the results on that. A third saying Trump, a third saying Clinton, and about a third saying, eh, don't know. Can't really say. But there was that good back and forth last night and. You know, I thought Trump had invented a new word when he was talking about how much he was going to cut taxes. You have
2: regulations on top of regulations, and new companies cannot form, and old companies are going out of business, and you want to increase the regulations and make them even worse. I'm going to cut regulations, but I'm going to cut taxes, big league, and you're going to raise taxes, big league. End of story.
1: I'm telling you, in the bar last night, nobody heard big league. Everyone thought he said bigly. We all thought Trump had invented a new word, bigly. That was part of the good back and forth at the beginning, and there was good back and forth at the end. But what struck me, and others have reported on this as well, is that Lester Holt asked follow up question after follow up question for Donald Trump. Lester Holt asked Donald Trump about his tax returns, he asked him about his support for birtherism. He asked him about sexist comments in the past. He asked them about his support on the Iraq war, all hot-button issues for Trump. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't ask Hillary Clinton about her emails. He didn't ask Hillary Clinton about Benghazi. He didn't ask Hillary Clinton about the Clinton Foundation and allegations that they've enriched themselves. Heck, he didn't even ask her about her, her health which has been a, an issue in the news, including the pneumonia. Donald Trump raised the issue of Clinton's emails. And I want you to listen. So you'll hear Donald Trump raise it. He is responding to Lester Holt's question. And you hear Holt do a follow-up on him. He presses him on it, something he didn't do to Hillary Clinton at all. So we asked him about re- releasing his tax returns. Trump says you'll do it when she releases her emails and then listen to the lame. It's not even a question. Listen to how he handles turning over the microphone to Hillary Clinton to respond on her emails.
2: Care of. I will release my tax returns against my lawyer's wishes when she releases her 33,000 emails that have been deleted. As soon as she releases them, I will release. I will release my tax returns, and that's against my lawyers. They say, don't do it. I will tell you this. No, in fact, watching shows, uh, reading the papers, almost every lawyer says, you don't release your returns until the audit's complete. When the audit's complete, I'll do it. But I would go against them if she releases her So it's negotiable? It's not negotiable. No, let her release the email. Why did she delete thirty-three thousand?
3: I'll let her ask that, but let me just uh, admonish the audience one more time: there was an agreement. We did ask you to be silent, so it would be helpful for us, Secretary Clinton.
4: Well, I think you've just seen another example of bait and switch here. Um...
1: Oh, talk about bait and switch! Clinton went on for more than two minutes about why Donald Trump won't release his tax returns, and then she gave a small little answer on her emails. But did you hear that question? Let's let's play just the Holt follow-up clip. Let's just play what he asked her. This is the stunning hard-work journalist that Lester Holt is. He held her feet to the fire. He made sure she was accountable when he pressed her on the emails by saying this.
3: Secretary Clinton.
1: Secretary Clinton. That's it. That's all. Just The mic's yours. Say what you want. Uh, Trump, no, you I'm going to nail down. You I'm going to make accountable. I have no problem with them pushing Trump. But why is it always that it's the Republican or the conservative that moderators want to show that they're tough with, while liberals get a free pass? Well, we know the answer, and the answer is that journalists are inherently and naturally liberal. There was a survey done years ago, and I don't think they've done it again since. But they asked about presidential voting, and it was 92% of the White House press corps were voting Democrat, 8% were voting Republican in that particular year. I'd be willing to bet it's 99 to 1 if they could find 1% that would say they're voting for Donald Trump this year. The media are inherently liberal, it is their natural inclination. I wish I could understand why. I don't want the media to all be conservatives or Republicans or what have you. And yeah, there's guys like me and there's columnists who lean to the right, but guess what? All the people that say they're unbiased journalists just there to tell you the truth and they're not opinion people, nine times out of ten, they're liberals. Nine times out of ten, they're very left-wing, and it's the simple reality. Lester Holt showed that last night by asking six follow-up questions to Donald Trump, zero to Hillary Clinton, interrupted Trump consistently, not so with, uh, with Clinton. He was, in essence, the third debater on the stage last night, and it was a two-on-one. Shame on him. His journalistic credibility took a hit last night, and let's just hope he doesn't get a chance to host another debate. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Pipeline politics coming back, moving expenses, all of that on the show, plus dissecting this power scam and what to do about gun violence in the city. Don't go away.
0: Is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa.
1: The special interest groups that feed at the trough that is Ontario's energy system are up in arms about the decision by the wind government to back away from expanding green energy. They're putting out statements uh, about how disappointed they are. That's something we'll get into with Tom Adams coming up in the next segment. Um, As I said, Tom Adams, independent energy consultant, someone that knows the system better than the premier, will explain what this is all about, what it will mean for your bill. Is it a big climb down? What does it mean for the communities that didn't want wind farms? Are they going to be saved, places like um, South Dundas? Nation Township? Are they going to be able to say, okay, good, we didn't want them anyway? We'll get into that with Tom in a couple of minutes. On the other side of the energy issue is the fact that Justin Trudeau doesn't want an energy industry in the traditional sense in this country. He has uh, shut down one pipeline that had already gone through the regulatory system. Keep saying we've got to have these independent experts. These arms-length groups, but when the National Energy Board approved Northern Gateway with, I think it was 208 conditions, what was his response? He wouldn't let it happen. So he's essentially killing it off by putting a tanker ban off of B.C.'s west coast. Done with no study, by the way, because they believe in facts and evidence-based and science decision-making. Bull crap. There's also Kinder Morgan. It's been approved uh, by the National Energy Board, but Trudeau's taking more time to think about that, meaning he's uh, licking his finger and putting it in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. Rana Ambrose was Adam today in the House of Commons saying, look, the economy is kind of sucking right now. There are all kinds of people that need jobs and you've got an easy fix if you would just say one simple word and that's yes.
5: Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister is failing when it comes to backing our resource workers and their families. He has been faltering on making decisions on major energy projects and this has to stop. The Pacific Northwest LNG will provide thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in investment at no cost to taxpayers. Mr. Speaker, these workers and families need the Prime Minister to make a decision. They can't afford to wait any longer. Will the Prime Minister finally make a decision that's in the interests of energy workers?
6: Yeah. The Prime
7: Minister. Mr. Speaker, Canadians elected this government in order to make decisions in the interests of all Canadians, and that's why uh, we're focused on making sure that there is no longer a false choice put forward between being good for the environment and building strong jobs. Uh, We're actually going to do them both together on a broad range of projects. That's what Canadians expect, to defend our environment, to create economic growth, and to do that while respecting communities and partnering with Indigenous peoples. That's what Canadians expect of their government. That's exactly what this government is going to do.
5: Mr. Speaker, we warned the Prime Minister that his reckless spending and higher taxes would not create jobs. And now this is Canada's new reality. It means less jobs and less economic growth. But there are solutions. We have workers in this country with the skills, the ambition and the ability to get to work today. But too many projects are stuck waiting for this Prime Minister to make a decision. Will the Prime Minister do the right thing and approve job creating pipeline projects so we can get our hardest hit families back to work?
7: For 10 years, the previous government was unable to approve large projects simply because they didn't have the public confidence. They didn't demonstrate that they understood that building a strong economy requires one to protect the environment at the same time. That is what we are focused on. They also don't understand that the the only taxes that we've raised are on the wealthiest 1% so we could lower them for the middle class, and they voted against it, Mr. Speaker.
1: How many times can Justin Trudeau tell that outright lie that they didn't get any pipelines approved? They got plenty of pipelines approved, including one to Tidewater. It's called Northern Gateway, and you're shutting it down. Tell the truth, Justin, and quit saying you're about science and facts and evidence. Now, on the other side of this debate, and this is normally where liberals like to be, they like to say, oh, look, we're being attacked by the conservatives and the NDP, so we're doing the right thing. Tom Mulcair is after him on trying to whether he'll approve a natural gas pipeline because B.C. wants to be big into liquefied natural gas, but that requires a pipeline to their coast, going through part of the same area that the Northern Gateway pipeline would go through. He wants that shut down. So the Conservatives are saying approve pipelines. Tom Mulcair and the NDP are saying shut down pipelines. I guess their view is just leave it in the ground. The only thing I'll give Mulcair marks for is if you saw Trudeau get uh, snubbed by Little Prince George in the high five. Yeah, Mulcair makes reference to that in his question.
8: Mr. Speaker, when the Royals arrived in Canada over the weekend, the prime minister said, and I quote, the Great Bear Rainforest is no place for a crude oil pipeline. British Columbians give that a big high five. <laughs> what he seems, what he seems unwilling to do, is to say whether he thinks the Great Bear Rainforest is a place for a natural gas pipeline. Can he reassure British Columbians on that, or is he just going to leave them hanging,
7: the Honourable Prime Minister? In the previous election, we made a very clear uh, statement that we would both protect the environment and create jobs and prosperity that Canadians expect. It's no longer a question of making a choice on one side or the other. And that's why uh, we're moving forward in a responsible way to analyzing various projects, and we're going to make the, in the, the decisions in the best interests of all Canadians, whether it's communities, whether it's Indigenous partners, whether it's people concerned about the environment or indeed people concerned about growth. Uh, that's our our responsibility, and that's what we're going to live up to.
1: I really wish that the liberals were in their traditional position of straddling and doing what's right and saying, oh, we're trying to be between the conservatives and the NDP. Unfortunately, it's window dressing. And where they are is where the NDP essentially is, which is no development, no growth, no pipelines. There is no reason for them not to have approved Kinder Morgan. The National Energy Board said it's ready to go, we approve it. All it requires now is for Cabinet to say yes. Northern Gateway, same thing. Harper said yes. Trudeau said no. He's shutting it down. And, of course, with all the Quebec municipalities against Energy East, you can be sure he'll come down against that as well. Why? Well, Quebec voters matter more, I suppose. That's just the way it is with Trudeau and the Liberals. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back... Tom Adams on the green energy sham getting shut down. Is it good news for you? Back in moments.
0: This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580 CFRA.
3: So today's decision is expected to save up to $3.8 billion in electricity system costs, saving the typical residential electricity consumer an average of approximately $2.45 per month on their electricity bill.
1: Uh, that was Energy Minister Glenn Tebow earlier today making the big announcement that they're not, they're going to stop wasting your money on wind and solar energy that we don't need at very, very high prices. Didn't go over too well in the legislature, though. I mean, the reaction from the PCs was pretty swift. Here's Patrick Brown reacting in question period to the liberal announcement.
9: Just like the rebate announcement, today's announcement is just too little, too late. The government has plowed ahead for years signing contracts for energy we simply do not need. The Premier has become the best Minister of Economic Development that Pennsylvania and New York has ever seen, giving away our hydro at pennies on the dollar.
1: Patrick Brown, pennies on the dollar, giving away energy well, at least we're going to stop building. Is this a good thing, a bad thing? What does it mean? Is it a whole hill of beans? Tom Adams is an independent energy consultant out of Toronto who's no stranger to this audience, and he joins me now on the line. Tom, $3.8 billion, they say, it's going to save $2.45 a month off of our hydro bills because we're not going to build big, expensive wind uh, and solar plants.
10: Yeah, and I... Uh... I'm pretty excited about it, actually. I, I, I actually, I mean, this is you know not my usual, but I, I, think Kathleen Wynne deserves some praise for this. Um, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it's kind of it, um, helping to reduce the headache by not banging our heads on the wall, kind of uh, uh, situation. <laughs> but we, we, she, she, this would have been a difficult decision for the Ontario government to make. They they have been you know drinking the Kool Aid for so long about how um, uh, wind and solar was the path to redemption um, I- that it was going to enliven the economy there was going to be you know fifty thousand jobs and there was going to be uh, it wasn't going to drive up the cost of electricity and it was going to do all these good things and it was going to make us a world leader and everybody would be path to our doors and they've been. They've been pumping out that line for so long that for for the actual you know for, for the for the communication con- consultants that are in her office to be actually sitting at their computers and writing down on their press releases, oh, we're not going, we're going to what the the, the term the minister used in his letter. To the IESO, the the power system operator people that are were on the verge of buying another thousand megawatts of useless juice, um, uh, the, the 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 minister's word in his letter was suspend this process of buying the useless juice, and for, I, like you know just putting the shoe on the other foot from the point of view of the of the the bureaucrats and the lobbyists and the the communication consultants that run the minister, for them to be actually writing that on the page would have been a difficult thing for them to do.
1: I really thought that they were so wedded to this ideology that the PST rebate was all that we would see from them on this.
11: Well, they
10: tried that, but everybody laughed at it so hard. Like, it was such a stupid idea, and like it got so little traction with anybody, you know, that pays attention to, you know, the, oh, okay, we're going to take less money out of your right pocket, so, of your ratepayer's pocket, so we can take more money out of your left pocket as a taxpayer. You know, like, I mean, what, what kind of ridiculous nonsense is that? Nobody fell for that. That was the that was the whole thrust of their 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 throne speech, and it I mean it was just embarrassing.
1: <laughs> and normally throne speeches are where you talk about grand ideas, not let's jiggle a little with how we tax you. Um, the energy industry though, the special interest groups, they're not happy with this. They want us to keep hitting our heads against the wall. Environmental Defense put out a news release that said, "Now is the time to ramp up green energy, not back away from it." The Wind Energy Association uh, says that they are very disappointed with an, with this announcement. Uh, so they're going to get an awful lot of pressure to to reverse gears and and you know stay on the path they were in.
10: The pressure on the government is already tremendous, and it's only hours since this surprise announcement came out. The wind industry has been caught completely flat-footed. They didn't know this was coming. And they have started up their lobbying engines fa- so fast that it may- would make, by comparison, the tobacco industry's head spin. Uh, uh, by comparison, when the you, you know back in the springtime or something, the uh, uh, the federal government decided that it was going to move uh, to plain packaging, and it took the tobacco industry like weeks before they you know had websites and you know ads and you know the, uh, the, the full motor of their of their 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 lobbying effort and public outreach effort going. But the, but these – these the, 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 the interest groups that have been feeding off the subsidies for this wind and solar stuff, they are already – this is just hours after the announcement. They've already got um, a, a full-on lobbying campaign well,
1: going full bore. They take away those subsidies. There's no more organization. Let me ask you this. Speaking with Tom Adams, independent energy consultant, joining me from Toronto tonight – The man who knows the system better than the premier. That's for sure. Uh, Tom, we've got a lot of non-willing host communities. I think I've got the term right. In Ontario, a number of them in eastern Ontario. I know they're down in Niagara. They're out towards London. But we've got, just to the east of me here, uh, we have uh, North Dundas. Or, sorry, South Dundas. We've got um, the Nation Township. These were communities that said, we don't want these giant wind farms. And the government said, "No, you're taking them." Does this announcement change the future for those communities, or is it too late for them?
10: Uh, um, for some communities, this this uh, is this announcement has come in time to save them from uh, invasive development that they, you know, the, these communities clearly did not want. Uh, unfortunately, for many others, it's too late. That they, the contracts have actually been let. Um, the, the the wind turbines haven't been erected or they are in the process of being erected or they're actually in operation. But if the contracts have been let, those projects are still going ahead. So there's there's like a, a, a smattering of groups. I, I don't know uh, how many locations yet. Still looking into the geographic dispersion of this, but um, uh, the, of course, many of your listeners will, will know um, uh, some of these instances and maybe they can Mm -hmm. help you. uh, uh, But I I don't, I can't um, pull any to mind at this moment, but there are some communities that have been, you know, saved at the last, at the last breath, like, These contracts were were about to go – they were, like, literally a couple months away from from going to completion, you know, getting past the point where they could not be stopped. Um, As we learned with the gas scandal a couple years ago, when the Liberal government cancels projects, sometimes they cancel them too late. Um, uh,
1: (laughs) And that costs us.
10: Oh, that that was that was over a billion dollars, according to the auditor general's uh, analysis. Um, uh, So you know of just you know money just down the tubes, basically. Um, uh, So so sometimes these cancellations can be very expensive, but it looks so far from what I can tell, and you know maybe somebody can correct me on this. I I hope I'm right about it, but that it looks like we can get out of this without paying a cent to any of those uh, contestants in the in the so-called large uh, renewable procurement uh, program uh, version two that that the minister's announcement relates to.
1: All right. Well, as you said, then kudos to Kathleen Wynne today. Uh, She's going to lessen her headache by stop forcibly banging her heads against the wall. Tom, thanks for the time.
10: Okay, thank you, Brian.
1: Take care. Tom Adams, the energy consultant uh, that you turn to when you try and peel back the layers on these stories. Do you know what's going on in your community? Do you, do you know if your community has escaped this or have the contracts been let? I know there's many of you that listen that are concerned about this story. Email me news at CFRA.com.
0: mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
1: Well, we're going to have two senators on the show, sort of. You'll hear from Senator Vern White, former Ottawa Police Chief, on what's going on behind the scenes and what strategies might work and what, what kind of help. Ottawa police need to deal with the gangs issue, the shootings issue, the murders going on in the city. You'll hear from Senator Vern White in about 15 minutes time, but right now, it's time to hear from Senator Patrick Brazo. Of course, he had the charges dropped against him after three years of illegal drama. He returned to work at the senate right after those charges were dropped but today is the first day that he gets to return to his seat in the chamber because the senate's actually sitting so instead of just going to his office he got to go to the chamber he chatted with evan solomon about that earlier today on ottawa now
12: what was it like to walk into the red chamber after three and a half years
13: well it was uh certainly uh, a surreal start to the morning uh, but uh Having said that, uh, you know, I just felt like a uh, rookie going to hockey camp again. So, uh, you know, I had butterflies in my stomach, but uh, it was uh, positive, and it was certainly a great day for me and my family.
12: How did your colleagues receive you?
13: Well, to be quite honest, uh, a little bit uh, hot and cold, um, obviously. uh, But having said that, uh, I did have some former colleagues who initially voted uh, to suspend me, uh, come to me and uh, essentially tell me that uh, they were sorry that... uh, they voted the way they did and uh, put me what they put me through. So I found that quite uh, quite nice from uh, some of uh, my former colleagues.
12: Is that right? Can you give us any idea who, who kind of had come around on this issue?
13: Well, I, I prefer not to give names uh, just for, for the time being, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, uh, there was uh, not a whole lot of my former colleagues who did that, but uh, there was certainly a handful who did, and uh, obviously other uh, independent and... Uh, Current uh, liberal senators as well.
12: Did you have a conversation with Mike Duffy or Pamela Wallen about your ordeal and their ordeal?
13: Well, I, I spoke with uh, both of them uh, last week. Uh, we we did have a uh, a dinner uh, comprised of uh, uh, independent senators trying to move forward. So we did have a chance to to talk. Uh, and uh, I had a brief chat with uh, Senator Wallen uh, upon my arrival in the chamber. Yes.
12: And just giving us an idea of what what you and and Senator Duffy spoke about, but you both been through very public profile uh, situations. Um, what did, what did you guys what did you say to him? What did he say to you?
13: Well, it, you know, we just basically uh, you know without going into uh, great detail, we just talked about uh, you know what uh, the ordeal did to us uh, personally and uh, health wise. And uh, but uh, having said that, I guess uh, we're just both gla- both glad to. Uh, to be back on the job
12: and what did uh, you what was your conversation with Pamela Wallen the senator what she's also had her expenses investigated by the RCMP no charges against her however what was your conversation like with her
13: well again uh, it's more on the uh, personal level uh, with respect to uh, how this uh, affected us uh, uh, individually and I mean uh, in terms of uh, Senator Wallen's case uh, while she was under investigation uh, I found out that uh, both of her parents passed away, and so uh, unfortunately her parents didn 't have the uh, opportunity uh, to see that uh, she um, you know she was in the clear and that she had no longer any investigations uh, pending upon her so uh, you know you know it, you know this took its toll uh, on us uh, personally uh, d- different wise and uh, it 's unfortunate because you know when people mention the Bennett scandal uh, well i don 't see it as a a Senate spending scandal. what I see it is that it is there was a prime minister and a political party who took advantage of their power uh, to throw under throw people under the bus, and, and that was the scandal, and should be the scandal.
12: You are now part of a fifteen member group uh, of, of independent senators, right? Yes. And when you said you had a dinner, where 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 did the fifteen of you go? When was that?
13: Uh, we had a dinner, um, a private dinner uh, at the uh, parliamentary restaurant uh, last uh, Tuesday. Uh, to discuss uh, how uh, we can move forward in a nonpartisan basis um, while respecting everybody's independence in the Senate. Uh, And certainly the focus uh, was to look at how uh, independents can have more membership on the uh, different committees, because as it is now, uh, two independents uh, are slotted for each and every committee, so there should be more equity in terms of independence. Because there's more of an influx of independents now, and will be, uh, that we should have uh, more equity and, and being able to, uh, to sit on those committees.
12: Yeah, and, and t- tell me about how that group is functioning because there's lots of reports out uh, about what you want and, how, and there's going to be new senators there. What, what's the plan? How are the, the independent group of senators, what do you want? How are you going to work together?
13: Well, look, uh, this morning there was a uh, press release uh, that was done by the independent senators uh, exactly outlining uh, what uh, what our focus is, what our, our sort of our mandate is, and how we we, uh, we uh, will approach uh, you know the Senate uh, chamber in moving forward. And uh, like I said, the, the the premise and the major issue is how to get more membership on those committees uh, because right now we only have two. Uh, yeah. So how this. do you do
12: that? I mean, this this kind of now you're kind of forming like an independent party. You want a caucus. You want, as I understand it, and just so and people know that I'm speaking to Senator Patrick Brazo back in the Senate for the first time in three and a half years. He's part of a 15 member independent senators group. There's Senator Elaine McCoy is the group's facilitator. There might actually be a leader. What do you want a budget? How are you going to function?
13: Well, like I said, we're we're in the early stages of planning. Uh, We had, uh, you know, there's been uh, several meetings uh, before I got in. I I only came in uh, last week, and uh, there's some more meetings that will take place in the very near future. And so we're just like-minded senators uh, who are unaffiliated or not part of a uh, partisan caucus. So we are not a caucus. We're just a group of like-minded individuals who uh, will vote uh, our conscience uh, when bills are presented before us. Uh, but, again, the, the main gist of uh, what we would like to do is um, uh, have uh, more equity in terms of uh, committee membership, and, and, you know, that's that's a start.
12: Okay, l- let me talk about this, Patrick Pryor, and I got you just for a minute here. You say you're going to vote your conscience. I'm a Canadian citizen. I-, I don't necessarily know if I want you to vote your conscience. I want you to represent a region. I want you to represent... I mean, you're a senator. You're there to be this uh, sober second thought. You're there to represent you know, the, the the purpose of the bicameral system is that we've got disproportionate population. You know, Prince Edward Island doesn't have the population of Quebec, but the Senate is there to give equal regional representation. How, as an independent senator, will you be guided? Is it just Patrick Brazo's heart, or is it your region that you represent? I'm trying to figure that out.
13: Well, I, I'm glad that you asked that question, because uh, part of the discussions that we're having is perhaps, Uh, to have uh, regional uh, caucuses in in the future. Um, So, you know, that's an idea that's been proposed. I don't know how far it will go. Uh, To many senators, it makes sense. To others, there's still disagreement. But uh, that's the purpose of why we are getting together, to ensure that uh, we represent not only regions, uh, because that's what the Senate was uh, established for, but also to represent minority rights. Uh, and so it's a work in progress, so we're just in its, uh, it's, just in its initial stages, and uh, we will see uh, very shortly how far uh, it's going to lead us.
12: Okay. Uh, we are going to very much be looking forward to where this goes. Uh, Senator Brazo, you've been through a lot. By the way, I just should tell people, and it's not over for you, is it, right? You've got to go back into court on October 26 about refusing to submit for a breathalyzer test. So you're still dealing with that. Any how, does that, how do you deal with that as well as now you're back in the Senate?
13: Well, uh, today I'm back in the Senate, and I'm enjoying this day. It's very special for me and my family. And with respect to the pending legal issues, I'll deal with that when they come. And obviously, because they're before the courts, uh, I cannot comment on that.
1: Patrick Brazo in conversation with Evan Solomon earlier today. Um, big changes at the Senate. Justin Trudeau firing all those liberals, I mean, that's just part of what is going on. That was part of the conversation about the independent caucus of sorts. So all of this will lead to a very different power dynamic. I wonder if he's ready for it. When we come back, dealing with the guns, the gangs, the shootings, the murders, what does what do the Ottawa Police Service need to help fix this problem? We'll get answers from the man that used to head them up, Vern White, when we come back. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Drop me an email, CFRA.com.
0: Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA.
14: Well, I'm deeply concerned about the level of gun violence and and the number of shootings and the number of killings. It's uh, unacceptable in a civil society.
1: And, of course, uh, that's Mayor Jim Watson talking about the 49 shootings and 13 homicides so far in 2016. Just to give you a, a bit of an indication, Ottawa's murders in the past several years, 2010, 14, 2011, 11, 2012, it was down to nine. Same in 2013, then seven and seven the last couple of years. Now up to 13. And the shootings, obviously, we're going to break the record of 49. What is to be done about this, though? It's great for politicians to say they're concerned. It's great for people to call for police to do more. But my read on this, and we talked about this last night, my read, you look at what is going on with the shootings. You look at the murders that are happening, and quite often this is inter warfare. Is there a way to deal with this? Senator Vern White was, of course, police chief here in the nation's capital from 2007 until 2012 before joining the Red Chamber. He still keeps an eye on issues related to crime, policing, and he joins me on the line now. Senator, uh, thanks for the time.
11: How are you? How are you, Brian?
1: Uh, doing well tonight, but concerned about the the shootings that are, are going on in the capital, although... You know, from my time as a reporter, Montreal, Toronto, here, wherever, I always say the chances of random shootings are rare. And that's why they make big news, because normally it's targeted. But as someone that's been in the position of of having to be a chief of police as numbers were going higher than than people wanted, uh, what can be done? You've got so many of these where police are just being stymied by the fact that they may know who did it, but nobody will talk.
11: Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's obvious this is a real problem, not just this year. The last couple of years, we've seen a dramatic uh, increase in uh, gun violence. And, you know, this year, with nine of the 13 homicides directly linked to gang activity, that would tell everyone that uh, gangs are the problem. Um, You know, as well, uh, 10 of the 13 homicide victims this year were shot, which, again, would tell you that guns uh, are a real issue in the city. Um, there's no easy answer, and I'm not going to pretend there is uh, if you look at other cities that have faced this um, and uh, you know if we you just talked about some other cities you've worked, you know if you look at Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, they've gone through some of these same issues, and there's something to be learned from them. Um, probably a challenge right now is the you know, the manpower issue when it comes to the uh, Ottawa police uh, you know trying to staff up to have the flexibility to staff up to tackle gangs. Is difficult in a city like Ottawa. If you look at the year of the gun in Toronto, and I think you might have been there that year, 2006 I, or five. I was
1: in and out back then. Yeah. yeah.
11: If you look at that year of the gun, you know, they, I think they had 50 homicides, and they received a large amount of federal and provincial funding to help uh, suppress the gang problem, the gang problem that they were facing in that city. We're not getting that kind of help right now. We're not having the province step up and say, "Look, you know what? We're going to provide you with." funding for 40 officers for the next uh, 18 months to try and tackle this. So the service is trying to do it on the backs of what they already have, which is, you know, a city of 2,800 square kilometers uh, and providing every single level of policing service that they're, they've always been expected to. So that's, I, I think, one of the challenges.
1: in dealing with what is likely still the number one complaint, People are speeding on my street, officer. What are you going to do
11: about it? Look, I said before, the number one issue for, you know, 99% of the residents of this city is pretty minor. You know, it's kids spray-painting the bus stop or somebody speeding come and bang on the door. And they don't want that to stop. That's the challenge you have. So, you know, I guess if we look at this, and and we talked about, you know, we have an anti-gang strategy, and that's all well and good. And the anti-gang strategy that they've rolled out will work very well if some 13-year-old is not wanting to join a gang or if there's a disruption opportunity to you know move them away from gang activity the challenge you have right now is making the streets safe and that's where the public is concerned and rightfully so and and to be fair the chief i'm sure the executive and every single police officer and employee is is concerned as well so you know i think it needs to be more done and uh, i appreciate the mayor's concerns you know that, that that he's worried about this but i think right now it's going to take
1: Um, money and resources. Do they need to go to the feds or the province then and say, we need more manpower to to deal with this?
11: Well, I think they do. If you look at some of the programs that the provinces rolled out, and they're very successful by the way in the last decade. The province initially for Toronto, but they were able to successfully roll out funding for all of the major cities that were facing similar issues through Tavis funding, it was called. You know, I think, you know, we have to be back in front of the ministers in the city and and, uh, also the uh... the premier and saying you know what we need we need some assistance in getting more resources on the streets and initially in toronto they didn't hire new people because hiring twenty-five officers this year you know in eight or nine months you will get them on the street right that's the reality of a policing model it's not like recruiting school teachers and having them in the classroom in a week so instead in in toronto they were very successful at pushing the money into overtime to you know if the guys were on four on four off the Third day off, they would come in for a 12-hour shift, and you could target re, target police the, uh, uh, the certain areas of the city that were a real challenge. If you look at Montreal when there was a battle between the Rock Machine and the Hell's Angels, similar activity was undertaken by the uh, Montreal police with assistance from the SQ. So, so I think that's the kind of targeting you have to do. the The gang, the gang. Uh, Um, discussion around getting members out of gangs is a great discussion to have, but it will not solve the problem today, and that is the fact that people are being killed. And, you know, many will say, well, their gang members are getting killed by gang members. Who cares? But the truth is we don't want anybody shooting up the streets, and we will have someone killed who should not be or is not involved. And when that happens, like we saw with, uh, I think it was uh, Jane Kriba and Jane Kriba and in Toronto, that's a, all of a sudden then it became a big issue. We shouldn't have to wait for that big issue. It should be a big issue right now. No.
1: She she was standing in line to get into a store yep. on Boxing Day when gang banners decided to shoot up Yonge Street.
11: And that's exa- you know that's that's when it, in, in Montreal it was when a kid was blown up right mm-hmm. in in a, in a, a car and. But you know, I think uh, I think we do need to see a bigger um, discussion, not just in the city of Ottawa. And I think the province needs to step up. You know, they they step up when you know when Toronto has a snowstorm, somebody brings in the military and we go buy a shovel. But right now we need their help, and I think uh, you know, I think Queen's Park has to step up and help with some you know short and medium-term funding until the uh, city of ottawa can get more resources out on the street because i can tell you the officers out there are as frustrated as you and i and every other citizen is you know it's just not having enough people to push into these communities and shaking people up you know and and that uh, we're not going to let it happen the community doesn't want it no and, and they're afraid you know and i don't blame them i come from a rough area of cape breton where my neighbors and my parents wouldn't have called the police either, you know. That fear is that fear is, uh, prevalent because you're not leaving there. You're still there after after you call the police, and that fear is tough. Um, so you need to engage more and more and more, and you have to be on the streets in those communities. And the only way you can do that is with human beings, and the only way you can put human beings out there is with money.
1: All right. So, you know, quite often we hear about uh, what I consider to be a gimmicky-type program. Oh, we'll just have a gun amnesty, uh, pick, uh, pixels for pistols or something like that. You know, my experience with that is you get a bunch of broken twenty twos, but the 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 guys that are running the gangs and pushing the drugs, and that's why they have the guns. They're not turning in their pistols.
11: No, look, you need a gang gang suppression strategy here. I'm not saying those amnesties aren't a good idea, but they will not solve this problem. The gang gang dealers or gang members are not going to show up with their their nine millimeter and their three fifty seven CGs. I might get a new uh, new camera out of this. Our challenge is the fact that gangs are in uh, um, some form at war, and as a result, people are getting killed. And uh, the only way to slow that down or to stop that is through investigation and uh, suppression and disruption, and the only way that will occur is with people.
1: Most of the shootings haven't resulted in death, injuries. No. I'm guessing some of them are warnings. Some of them, it's just bad shots. Well, yeah, uh, I mean but,
11: they don't spend a lot of time at the range, right?
1: No, but uh, do you take this as a, as a sign that maybe there is a, a turf war over? I'm I'm guessing uh, drugs in the city of Ottawa.
11: Yeah, I mean, there's always a bit of a push pull when it comes to drug trafficking in the city. Who owns what areas? And uh, sometimes it shows up in this type of violence, and and other time, other times with people ripping off each other's drugs and robbing each other. And um, so, so this is cyclical. You see it here. You see it in Calgary. You see it in Winnipeg and Edmonton, uh, and uh, you know it's those cities that are similar to ours. Uh, this this isn't uncommon, but that doesn't mean you wait for the cycle to end. It means you intervene and show them that. Uh, truthfully you know the, the police uh, are going to take control of this and it's tough on the guys uh, I can tell you talking to the officers and the civilians out there they they're feeling the pressure to do something more but you know they they still only have what they have so I, I you know I, I hate to always say it's the province's turn but it is the province's uh, turn to help and they've ha- they helped Toronto when it happens and I think it's time for them to step up and help us as well
1: Senator thanks for the time thanks for the insight
11: thanks Brian take care
1: Former Ottawa Police Chief turned Senator Vern White. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News, back in moments.
0: To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
15: What's presented as two elements. One is the symbolic nature of being a capital city in a bilingual country. And the other one uh, is more tangible, which is we have an existing French services policy at the city. No changes to that, but taking that policy and entrenching it in uh, the Ottawa Act, which is a provincial act, uh, so that we can sustain the levels of service.
1: The debate that will not go away: do we need to make the city officially bilingual? Well, there is a new poll out from a group called Bilingual Ottawa, a group that supports and is advocating, pushing for making Ottawa officially bilingual. And that poll says a small majority of residents are okay with it. It's not overwhelming support in favor, but they're okay with it. So that was Councillor Matthew Fleury talking about what the proposal means. He says he's willing to bring the proposal to council if 17 other councillors show support for it. He knows this can be a contentious issue. I know that many of you view this as a contentious issue. Kim McConnell is a director with Canadians for Language Fairness. They are a group that opposes the expansion of official bilingualism in Ottawa. As, by the way, so does Mayor Jim Watson. And several councillors, Kim, thanks for the time.
16: Hi, good evening.
1: Good evening. What uh, What is your main issue My, with uh, the proposal to make all the city officially bilingual?
16: Well, first of all, people have said they've, they've said very clearly that they do not need it to be official. Now, having the, the service in both languages, the city of Ottawa has already done that. Now, what the French groups want is for it to be entrenched in law so that they can take the city to court any time any one of them says, no, this is not good enough, we have to take it to court. So and the no equivalent
1: matter... of the 7-Up on Air Canada.
16: Exactly. They want the law behind them. I mean, they know already the Constitution is behind them, and Matthew Flory was wrong to say that Canada is officially bilingual because it is not. It is officially bilingual at the federal level, according to the Official Languages Act. But he forgets that language is a prerogative of the province. Otherwise, how would Quebec be able to have unilingual French in that province? And how is it they're able to pass laws against the English? So So he cannot say that. Now, the only province that is officially bilingual is New Brunswick, and they are having a hell of a problem with the French pushing, not for official bilingualism, but for duality. There's a big difference, Brian. Duality means that they want French institutions to be only French, like French schools, French French clinics, French hospitals, whatever. And, and
1: we see some of that here with... Clinics opening up that are uh, almost exclusively French.
16: Exactly. And they feel that they're entitled to it. Well, they shouldn't be entitled to it.
1: Okay, but let me interrupt and ask you this, Kim. Do you have a problem with French language services being offered when a Francophone citizen of the city goes into a community center or to City Hall or to any city institution and wants to be served in French?
16: Well, if they want service in French, of course it is reasonable. Because you know what? There are always French-speaking people in the office. Do you know that about 30% of the city is made up of francophones? And a lot of them are from Quebec. That is the painful part of it. We are paying taxes in the city of Ottawa so that we can give jobs to bilingual people from Quebec.
1: Oh, you're saying that the the city employees live in Quebec? Yes, they do. Let me uh, me ask you this. My big concern has always been, when this issue's come up over the last 15 years that I've been covering it, language of work. The ability for someone to say, I want to be supervised in the language of my choice, so therefore uh, my supervisor has to be bilingual or that, francophone.
16: That is how they do it. The creeping is creeping bilingualism. They say we want to be able to work in French. So all the supervisors have to be French and so forth. And of course, once you have a supervisor who is French, he will only employ French-speaking people.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm, I, that might be an exaggeration, but well, I, I can say that the proportion of francophones in the uh, Federal civil service, where this policy exists, is higher than their proportion of the population. And having spoken to uh, francophones who have taken the language test, they, they will tell you that the English test is easier than the French test.
16: Oh, that is an obvious thing because everybody says it. Do you know that when French people go for tests, they would rather do it in English? And they tell us.
1: Well, I, I know someone that tried to hire their assistant that um, was brought in on a casual basis because their their former assistant left. They had a, a temp replacement. They really liked the person. They, they failed the French test. The woman was a francophone.
16: Yes. Oh, that that happens all the time. And you know what, Brian? They use this as a reason for wanting more French. They say, you know what? Not enough of our own people... Speak proper French. They don't even pass the test. Therefore, we have to make them. We have to force it on them Uh, so that more of them will become French or bilingual. I mean, you know, French.
1: uh, I know of a few people in my social circle that have uh, disappeared from their job anywhere between nine nine months and one close to two years. for French language training. Do you see that coming to the city of Ottawa if we adopt this policy?
16: Obviously, obviously, because, you know, you have a lot of very well-qualified people who are not bilingual. You know, bilingualism is a, a thing that favors the French speakers. Or if you're a linguist, like if you've got a very good ear and you can hear words and you can remember those words, you know, then if you're not a French speaker, you can pick up French. And there are people like that, but they are in the minority. Okay, So to make the job of any city or any government dependent on their ability to function in French is the most ridiculous thing. What, What is wrong with merit? Do you know that in Singapore, the criteria for jobs is merit. Never mind who you are, what you are. If you're good, you get
1: hired. Oh, that just sounds crazy. Uh, Kim, thanks for the time.
16: You're very welcome. Thank you, Brian.
1: People can Google Canadians for language fairness if they want to find out more. This policy debate will not go away anytime soon. That was Kim McConnell joining me. When we come back, a little bit more on the debate last night. Fran Coombs from Rasmussen Reports. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments.
0: Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. You called it the gold standard of trade deals. You you said it's the finest deal you've
2: ever seen. No. And then you heard what I said about it, and all of a sudden you were against
4: it. Well, Donald, I know you live in your own reality, but that is not the facts. The facts are, I did say,
17: I hoped it would be.
1: That was probably Donald Trump at his strongest last night tackling Hillary Clinton on trade. Was it enough? Where will the American public go? I saw one story today, um, a focus group showing that while most people thought Clinton won the debate, several people in the focus group that had been leaning towards her going into the debate said they won't vote for her now. Of course, we're going to have to wait and see if that's uh, reflected in the more broad American public. And we'll be watching for several polls on that, including one from our next guest, Fran Coombs from Rasmussen Reports joins me now. Uh, I watched the, um, the debate, Fran. Thanks for the time, by the way. I watched the debate in a bar where one room was filled with conservatives, one room was filled with liberals, and two very different reactions as I watched back, walked back and forth.
14: I'm not, I'm not surprised seeing the
1: news accounts that I've seen today, that's for sure. What was your takeaway from the debate last night?
14: Well, on, on the simplest level, Brian, I think that each, uh, each of the candidates had a hurdle to clear. For, for Clinton, she's been dogged by these reports about her health, so she had to come and seem vibrant with it, uh, alert on her game for 90 minutes, and she definitely did that. I mean, any anybody that had any thoughts that she's not up to be the president, uh, that, she, that her health is suffering, she certainly blew that away last night. Trump, on the other hand, basically had to sh- uh, shirk this Jekyll and Hyde image he has where he can be on message and all of a sudden be – Excoriating a morning talk show host, or some other crazy thing, and be completely off topic. So he had to show that for 90 minutes he could focus on the issues and not blast the moderator or whatever. And I think he was able to do that.
1: I well, I blasted the moderator earlier because I I thought that Lester Holt passed up some good opportunities to press Hillary Clinton, but he didn't seem to pass up any. On Donald Trump. I mean, when Trump raised the issue of the emails and said, I'll release my tax returns when she releases her emails, Holt didn't say, well, why won't you release the email, Secretary Clinton? All he did was say, Secretary Clinton.
14: Right. Well, I think all you need to know about the, the moderator last night is that he spent considerably more time on the complete non-issue, the complete non-issue of President uh, Obama's birth certificate, and ask, the only time he asked about the emails uh, was in basically a follow-up to what Clinton said, uh, to, excuse me, what Trump said. Uh, he never asked about the Clinton Foundation. He never asked about any of those things. So clearly, uh, the moderator, as is often the case, uh, is giving a little assist to the Democratic candidate.
1: Yeah, he definitely had his Candy Crowley moment, I would say, last night. Uh, your next poll on this won't come out to Thursday. Do you ever predict what your own polls might say?
14: Never, <laughs> <laughs> because because almost invariably I would be wrong, Brian. Actually, the numbers will come back tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. although my lips will be sealed. Uh, but so we basically just the way our schedule is set up. Uh, the uh, we did one night. Uh, the night of the debate, but actually we got most of our numbers back before the debate had even started. So only half of the numbers will be taken post-debate, and we'll see if there's any kind of shift. As you know, Trump's been creeping up for the last couple weeks, uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how he how he does probably next week will be well actually i take that back friday will probably be even a better indicator because starting this week uh we're going to a daily clinton uh, trump matchup so okay so it'll uh, be a
1: daily a rolling daily tracking it's poll it's going
14: to be a rolling daily tracking poll like our daily presidential tracking poll so every morning at 8 30 we will be posting clinton versus trump for the next five
1: weeks oh wow so a, a lot of extra work for the folks over at rasmussen for the next little while
14: well, it's worth it at this time of year, that's for sure.
1: Now, you described it in uh, a piece that to, you posted this morning as the hyper competent bureaucrat versus change maker. Explain your thinking on that.
14: Well, basically, Hillary Clinton has been in professional politics, as you know, for thirty plus years. Uh, even actually starting, if you want back, right out of college when she worked on the uh, the, the, the Nixon and uh, Nixon. Uh, committee stuff of, of, uh, during Watergate. So uh, this is a woman who's well-schooled in speaking professionally, speaking politically, uh, being a policy wonk, if you will. So uh, I think she was really at the top of her game last night in terms of I have a plan, I have a program, I have a policy, I will name a special committee, I will name a special prosecutor. Uh, she has the Washington lingo. Uh, and the the policy issues down cold. Trump, by contrast, is coming in there saying, what do you say, the Middle East is a mess. Our trade policies are the worst ever. Uh, Painting in broad brush strokes, coming in there and basically saying, I'm going to hit Washington, D.C. like an atom bomb, which I think is one reason, probably the major reason that a lot of people have voted for him.
1: You said last Thursday when we spoke with your, your latest poll, which showed uh, I believe it was a five-point lead for right. Trump at that point. So that, that we'll be watching to see if that sticks or changes, and my guess is it'll change a few times between now and uh, in voting day. But uh, you said that Hillary Clinton's challenge in the debate was going to be that, as you said, more than 30 years in politics, everybody knows her. Can she reintroduce her reintroduced self? enough times to get people that you know very firm opinions many people really like her many people really dislike her was she able to hit that mark last night
14: I, you know i don't think so i, I think that I, I mean i think what people saw was hillary clinton uh well, the 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 only really cloud over her the, the new wrinkle is hows her health is she up to is she wise does she have the stamina Uh, which obviously Trump raised that point a couple times last night, Uh, does she have the stamina to take on the extremely demanding job of being president of the United States? And thus far, appearances seem to indicate that, yeah, she's okay. Uh, But I don't think anybody saw a Hillary Clinton last night that they haven't seen before or that they weren't aware of or anything like that. I mean, she was Hillary Clinton. She, as I said earlier, she has a program uh, and a plan for every issue uh, she you know and it will let, you know when in doubt send it to a committee uh, and she has a good grasp of the issue she can drop the names of some foreign leaders she definitely knows where Aleppo is um, that's that's who Hillary Clinton is and and there's no surprise there.
1: the uh, the developing story that's been uh, going by on the ticker for the last little while on CNN is that Trump threatens to uh, hit harder next time. He has to, I would say walk a fine line because anytime men take on women in debates in an aggressive manner on TV, the thinking is that they lose support from women, that people say, oh, I don't know, that, that seems harsh. D- is that borne out by polling research? Um, d- does he have to walk that fine line of of being aggressive against Hillary Clinton in the next debate and and not wanting to turn off especially women voters that – he'll need in good numbers if he wants to win.
14: Well that's certainly the that's certainly the traditional wisdom, Brian. Uh I I don't have any polling data to back that up one way or the other. But I think if you look at last night's debate, she was far nastier than he was. I mean she came at him with I mean, first of all she accused him of being a racist and she accused him of being a sexist. And if we're to believe Trump uh, in an interview this morning, the reason he didn't come back hard on the sexist issue was he saw Chelsea Clinton sitting out there, and he said she's a fine young woman, and I didn't want to say anything about her mother and father with her sitting there in the audience. But we know he's come back in the past with her being an enabler uh, for Bill Clinton's uh, sexual misbehavior. So how can somebody how can somebody sit up there and call me a sexist and claim that they're a defender of women when they're turning this predator loose on women? Uh, so – I don't. I don't know. She hit hard last night. I could he hit harder. Um, we'll see. I mean, he, I think he's probably getting a lot of prodding from his supporters today, saying you should have hit her harder. But um, I think he could hit her harder with things like email, Clinton Foundation, and things like that, without necessarily getting too nasty about it.
1: The next debate is October fourth, I believe. So a week from today.
14: Right, October fourth. But that's the. Uh, my understanding is that's the vice presidential debate. Oh, okay. You know, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's a snoozer. I mean, you know, people will watch that. But, I mean, again, as you know... Uh, but they only get one, right? Yeah, and, and, and mercifully only one. And uh, both those men are, are you know, they're, they're fine politicians. I'm sure they'll do a, a fine job. I'm sure they'll have a command of the issues. Uh, but vice presidential candidates, as you know, don't turn elections. So, actually, right. Clinton-Trump uh, will meet again on Sunday, October 9th.
1: Okay, and then 10 days after that, Wednesday, October 19th, that's the final one. So, right,
14: that's the final one in Vegas, yeah, Las Vegas.
1: All right, I'm sure we'll speak plenty between now and then. Fran, thanks for the time.
14: My pleasure, Brian. You take care.
1: Fran Coombs from Rasmussen Reports. If it's in the news, it's in their polls. Uh, and they do have a new poll coming out Thursday morning, and then their daily tracking begins on Friday. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News, back in moments.
0: Surgent? Believe it, the resistance is here. Beyond the news with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA.
1: Cheryl Gervais from Westboro qualified for the Ultimate Send Super season giveaway. Your next chance to qualify coming up at 9 35. That's right, 9 35. Make sure you flood those phone lines. Of course, we'll be opening up the phone lines in about 10 minutes' time to take your calls, get your reaction to the stories of the day, and see what you think. Let you have your say on the program. You can do that by emailing me as well, news at cfra.com. We'll read off some of those at, uh, at the top of the hour. I want to... Um, I want to turn back to this issue of the uh, expenses because it's the gift that keeps on giving in the House of Commons, and it's also resulted in a bit of conservative infighting. We'll get to that part in a moment, but it was funny earlier today when conservative MP Larry Miller from the Owen Sound area stood up in the House of Commons and asked, and he got the same question again. And it's his follow-up question that had me cracking up. just for the record, here's the whole exchange.
18: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I've always took pride in my math. And it's always been pretty good. But I'll tell you, I've been racking my brain trying to think of how is possible at all for someone to rack up more than $120,000 in moving expenses to move down the 401 from Toronto to Ottawa. Even if the Prime Minister's office moved their staff, by dog sled and pack mule, and, <laughs> and if I use liberal mathematics, I still can't come up with $126,000 cost. Will the prime minister, please stand up and explain to this house why it costs so much to move one of his staff yeah. uh, 450 kilometers down the. Floor. the Honourable government house, Thank you for the question, Mr.
19: Speaker. Mr. Speaker, as I've said in this house time and time again that this relocation policy has been placed since the 1970s, and this policy was last updated on the previous government. We have also heard how Stephen Harper's office, when he was Prime Minister, approved over $300,000 in relocation expenses, including one for $93,000. Our government recognizes that more can be done, and that is why our Prime Minister has asked the Treasury Board to revisit the relocation policy. Thank you, Mr. Speaker.
10: Y'all remember, for Bruce Gray, Owen Sound. Well, Mr. Speaker, uh,
18: if I had any hair with an answer like that, I'd pull the rest of it out. <laughs> But if I'd have known that a U-Haul was this expensive, Mr. Speaker, I would have offered to take a load of stuff for Jerry and my Ford (laughs) F-150. Now, the fact is, Mr. Speaker, this is classical liberal entitlement. The government keeps repeating that these were policies that have been in place for years. But I can tell you that is true. This government, or no government, before this government has ever abused this policy. Will, Will the Prime Minister come clean and admit that the million-dollar move
14: was
7: way out of the
19: House have heard what I have to say, and yes, I've repeated it a several times so that we can remember that the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's office also approved $300,000 in relocation expenses, including one of $93,000 for a single individual. But more importantly, why don't we share what Guy Jornor, former Chief of Staff to Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper, had to say. He said, the federal relocation program, which applies to hundreds of moves annually, including moves by employees of government Military and RCMP exist for a very good reason. Our government is committed to reviewing the policy.
1: You heard Guy Giorno's name come up in there. Bradish Jagger, how long can she keep repeating that same line? As Michelle Rempel told me last night, just feels sorry for the woman. She has to get up there and repeat these lines that are complete and utter nonsense. But Brad Trost did an interesting thing yesterday. He called out, Guy Giorno for his moving expense, which he says was not ninety-three thousand, it was seventy nine thousand dollars. At first he I believe he had said he wasn't sure of what he expensed. I could understand not remembering it was quite a few years ago. Some of these guys though try and pretend that like Jerry Butts, oh well we didn't know. I mean we we feel uncomfortable. You had to submit a receipt, you know. But Brad Trost, who wants to be leader of the Conservative Party, you've heard him on this program he called out Giorno. He does a regular feature on Twitter where he talks about an issue of the day, records a little video, and posts it out on the social media platform. And yesterday, he called out Giorno and told him to pay some of this money back.
7: Issue of the day, moving expenses. A whole pile of Trudeau liberals have been caught charging excessive moving expenses and been giving the money back. But what's good for the grit is good for the Tory, so when Guy Gernot, uh said in the news that he charged seventy-nine thousand, I think he should do the right thing. Not that he did anything unethical or illegal, but he should do the right thing by the Canadian taxpayer and pay some of that back. So we, as Conservatives, can continue to hold the Liberals to account. We need to have cleaner hands than they do. We need to do what's right. Go for it, Guy.
1: Now uh, Guy responded on uh, Twitter by saying that uh, Brad Trost has used one point five million of free travel and accommodation in his 12 years of being an mp so of course he doesn't understand the need for a relocation program he went on to say a relocation program is more accountable than the generous per diems no receipts no explanation that trost claims and collects so a bit of an internal fight going on i don't have an issue with this because trost is right if conservatives are going to go after liberals for this and you've got conservatives taking advantage of the program on a similar scale. Now, Guy Giorno, 79000 That's not in the Jerry Butts League. But it is getting up there. And it's very close to Katie Telford's range. So if you're going to demand that Telford and Butts repay money, then you've got to demand that Guy Giorno repay money as well. I don't understand how anyone in good conscience coming to take a very well-paid six-figure job can turn around and say, 79 81 $126,000, I'm entitled to my entitlements. I don't get it. I don't buy it. What about you? Beyond the News at CFRA.com, 521-TALK, five two one eight two five five or Star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments.
0: news with brian Lilly, news talk 580 cfra
6: like yeah, 521 talk
1: 521 8255 five, star 580 on bell mobility if you have anything to say on the plethora of topics that we've touched on tonight i know I know we can hit a lot of topics in tonight, but you come to this show you're hopefully going to uh, be entertained you're definitely going to be informed, and I hope you enjoy the conversation along the way so if you want to talk about the moving expenses, do you think that Brad Trost is right to call out Guy Giorno, or do you never say anything if conservatives do something bad? What's your policy? What do you make of Kathleen Wynn? How many of you in this audience, you've heard, you've heard Tom Adams, who's been critical of Kathleen Wynne's energy policy for years now? You've heard you heard him come on the air and say. Well, I guess kudos to Kathleen Wynn. She canceled something and this is good because it was going to be a really bad idea. Are you ready and willing to say thank you, Premier Wynn? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 521 talk, 521-8255 or star 580 on Bell Mobility. And you heard from Police Chief, former Police Chief turned Senator Vern White. What will really help, deal with the guns and gangs problem, is more boots on the ground. And that means more money for police, not to hire new officers necessarily, he said, but overtime because hiring officers, that's nine months to a year out before you ever see any results from them. They need boots on the ground now. They need to be paying for overtime. We need to be shaking down the people that are responsible for this until something breaks. Do you agree with the chief? Do you think he's out to lunch? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA. Chris writes in about the whole gang issue at Beyond the News at CFRA. He says, I think if you put safety ahead of being politically correct, then the police can end this. The police know the gang members. They know the houses and territories. What police don't have is law and political will to walk in and end the gains. Gun laws alone could put them in jail for decades. You never hear of gang members being charged with improper storage, unregistered, uh, loaded firearm in a moving vehicle, etc., etc. That's a very good point Chris raises at the end there. I think that they, um, I think the police would like to go in and, and end this in the way he's talking about, but their hands are tied. But. You charge these gang members with the same type of offenses that I would be charged with. If I ended up having a handgun improperly stored, lay every charge in the Firearms Act on them. We're talking about sentences of 10 years for those crimes. That's one way to help end the merry-go-round, the revolving door of justice. Put them away on every single charge you can and make it stick. Gloria in Ottawa, Gloria, you're on beyond the news.
17: Hi, Brian. You know you've got some excellent topics here, but i I want to talk about to win and this uh, hydro hoax um, about this two dollars and fifty cents she can, she can take take it along with her, all her liberals and put it where the sun don't shine because we're really we're more than fed up. And you, you can't believe a single thing that these lying liberals will say. They're in a panic and they will say anything to stay in power because it's all about power. And, and what Glenn Tebow was saying is so insulting t- t- to the taxpayer or to the hydropayer. Uh, I mean, how, how stupid does he think we are? I just love it when he proudly says, oh, We made $200,000 selling hydro. What he doesn't say is he sold a billion dollars worth of hydro for a a pittance of $200,000, and then we are charged with making up the difference. I mean, this idiot should never be uh, the finance minister with with his voodoo math. And also... uh, uh, uh th- this is what I, I think is important. Glenn Tebow never said anything about actually cancelling the wind and solar contracts. Uh, you, you mean
1: we, the current ones?
17: The current ones, yes. Only the, the media does. If you listen to the interview with Evan Solomon uh, today... All he said was the wind and solar contracts would be suspended and that he was going to push the pause button. Nothing about cancelling. I mean...
1: Well, you can't expect them to cancel the existing ones. They wouldn't do that. But they're they're not going ahead with other contracts.
17: Okay. The thing is this. On September 12th, Ron Snow interviewed Bruce Pardee, who is a professor of law at Queen's University, and he stated that all these wind and and solar contracts could be cancelled without paying any penalties. All the government would have to do is to enact a law stating that uh, there would would be no – and also, this is very important, it must be carefully worded to avoid any penalties. We we would have the uh, the option of getting out of these crippling bloody contracts uh, by this uh, inept, corrupt liberal government, and the Conservatives and the NDP should be pushing and demanding this. He this is what he said in the interview, and and you can listen to it uh, mm-hmm. yourself.
1: Yeah, no, um, I, I I remember that.
17: Do you remember that? Yeah. So we don't have to put up with with this. This the liberals u- using us as bait, and 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 sitting ducks uh, th- that we're going to pay. This is why our hydro is just astronomical, and and we have we have a way out. This is what Europe has done. But oh no, not not Kathleen Wynne. I guess she she wouldn't so- wouldn't, wouldn't want uh, all all the um, the the people who have bought into it and possibly the Liberals, have, have, have bought shares in, in these companies. So uh, they would stand to lose. But the thing is this, it, the existing even the existing contracts uh, can, can, can be cancelled by passing a, a law, enacting a law, which they should be forced to do and embarrassed to do because the thing is it's time to stop this pussyfooting around by the NDP and the Conservatives and 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 start uh, checking into things and and standing up for the taxpayer and the voter because they keep forgetting that. I think
1: Gloria, I, I don't know where to put you, but I think you're leaning towards saying you don't want to congratulate Miss Wynn.
17: Listen, I would <laughs> like to send her to Siberia as as a goodwill gesture from from Canada and and she, that she can never return.
1: Thanks for the call, Gloria. Thank you. Good night. Good night. 521-TALK, five two one eight two five five Star 580 on Bell Mobility. Do you have thoughts on the, the hydro changes? Give us a call.
0: News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. So today's decision is expected to save up to
1: $3.8 billion in electricity system cost, saving the typical
20: residential electricity consumer an average of approximately $2.45 per month
1: on their electricity bill. Glenn Tebow, the provincial liberal energy minister talking about pulling away from expanding oil, uh solar and wind power projects across Ontario that was going to cost billions of dollars more to produce electricity that we don't need. Hmm. Good idea, bad idea? Your thoughts 521 talk 5218255 star 580 on Bell Mobility. I have to tell you the um the ticker that runs in our uh uh news system is going nuts right now because they've announced just a short while ago that the federal government has approved a pipeline. But this one's not an oil pipeline. It's the gas pipeline we were talking about earlier. They made the announcement, Catherine McKenna, Jim Carr, the natural resources minister, fisheries minister, Dominic LeBlanc, they went to Richmond, British Columbia, to announce that the government is accepting the National Energy Board's recommendation to approve the liquefied natural gas pipeline that will go to Prince Rupert British Columbia and ship 19 million tons a year of liquefied natural gas to markets in Asia now why is this why is this bizarre why is it showing liberals to be nothing but hypocrites and liars on this Actually, can we, can we pull up CTV? They're on CTV News Channel right now making this announcement. Can we go?
3: Mr. McKenna and this, this is, May, is Jim this January, Carr. When we announced our interim principles for major projects, we stayed true to the timelines of this project, delivering when we said we would. You have heard Minister McKenna discuss the rigorous environmental aspects, but I would like to point out something unique about this project. For the first time ever, we're creating environmental monitoring committees in partnership with indigenous communities to coordinate oversight and share information on compliance and enforcement. Together with the province of British Columbia, we've invited the Laxqualams and Metlakatla First Nations to be part of a committee, and we've offered to create an arrangement with members of the Xinxian Environmental Stewardship Authority as well. Indigenous and traditional knowledge will be an integral part of the monitoring for this project. This will ensure information is shared in a timely way and provide a role for Indigenous groups in compliance monitoring. This is an exciting day for British Columbia and for Canada. And I would now like to invite my colleague, Minister Leblanc, to speak.
1: Okay, we can pot down on that. So, uh... Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr one of the trio making the announcement that they're approving this pipeline. Now, this pipeline, as I said, will go to Prince Rupert. Where is Prince Rupert, British Columbia? It's fairly far north. It's on the west coast, and it just below where the Alaskan panhandle comes down. If you know the map of Canada, Alaska skirts just below the Yukon and then has a section of what should be British Columbia coast, going along there, including their capital, Juno. But the argument from Trudeau and his liberals on why they said no to the Northern Gateway pipeline is that they don't want tankers off of BC's coast, that it's not safe. Guess what doing this will require? Tankers going onto BC's northern coast. The only difference is it's liquefied natural gas instead of oil. They're both products that come from petroleum. They're both moving by pipelines. One is just not as, uh, doesn't generate the same amount of opposition as the other. But you don't get natural gas without an oil industry, by the way. They They tend to go hand in hand. This is the exact same coastline. Both ports are inside an area between an ins- the Inside Passage and Graham Island off the coast of BC. Going into these areas will require tankers to navigate the same waterways as where the Northern Gate- Gateway Pipeline would go. And yet, this is deemed. Unacceptable. The oil pipeline is unacceptable. This pipeline is not. Truly, truly bizarre. But then again, then again, I don't expect liberals to make much sense. Not on this file. Not on many files. The only way that Kathleen Wynne ended up turning around and saying that she was going to make these changes on. Hydro and solar and wind projects. As she realized she was going to lose big time, she realized that they lost in Scarborough Rouge River, a riding that had always voted Liberal, and that she had to do something. I don't know what it'll take for Trudeau to start making common sense to start making common sense decisions, because right now he's still in the honeymoon phase, despite Prince George not giving him a high five. Really interesting is that the British media, they have not been uh, as enamored with Justin Trudeau as most of the other media. They're actually writing stories that are critical of him. He's not used to that. Back to the phones. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA. And the email is... Beyond the news at CFRA.com. Now, I want to play another clip, and I'd really love to get reaction from people. You heard me interview Kim McConnell earlier from Canadians for Language Fairness. They're in opposition to the group called Bilingual Ottawa, which is fronted by the Montfort Hospital, La City Collegiale, and the two local French school boards. They commissioned a poll done by Nanos Research on whether the capital should be bilingual. This is the big push. Now, at the capital, Ottawa already is a bilingual city. There's functional bilingualism in the city, and I would never for a moment say that we shouldn't have French services available. Not only available, but widely available, of course. But when you go to official bilingualism, we know what that leads to, and it leads to Changes in how hiring is done. That's what it becomes about. It becomes about language of work and not not about serving the public. But Councillor Matthew Fleury, in conversation with CFRA Newsroom earlier today, tried to say this was all symbolic. What's
15: presented as two elements, one is the symbolic nature of being a capital city in a bilingual country, and the other one uh, is more tangible, which is we have an existing French services policy at the city. No changes to that, but taking that policy and entrenching it in uh, the Ottawa Act, which is a provincial act, uh, so that we can sustain the levels of service.
1: If it's just symbolic, then why do it? Why does it need to be enshrined in legislation? Well, because the answer is so that later on they can use the courts, they can challenge, they can move, and they can expand. But not frontline services. It will never be about that. It will be about the -the behind-the-scenes administration of the city. That's why I say it's a bad move. I'd love to hear your thoughts. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Call now before those hockey folks call. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments.
0: He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
1: Justin Trudeau and his liberals said no to a pipeline for oil that would go to B.C.'s west coast as a port of Kitimat and mean tankers going off B.C.'s west coast. But right now they're in the middle of an announcement in Richmond, B.C. saying yes to a natural gas pipeline headed into the same area. Let's listen in a little bit. This is B.C. Premier Christy Clark, who's ecstatic about this. Uh, talking to reporters.
6: Boost ...for the country, if we can get these projects going sooner. I don't know when, um, when it, the market conditions might improve enough for these projects to go ahead, but I do know that in China and in India and in, in Japan in particular, people are really hungry. For a cleaner alternative to coal in in Japan, that's because their their nuclear facilities um, capacity is vastly diminished. And so they're replacing that with coal in many cases. In China, same problem. In India, the same problem. So I think that with this project especially, there is a really strong appetite to move um. Uh, this natural gas into their markets as quickly as they can. It needs to be a decent business case for that to get there but I'm I'm always hopeful and I'm always determined and uh, the fact is that this project wouldn't have been going anywhere no matter uh, what happens to prices if it hadn't been approved by the federal government today in their environmental process and I I want to say I think uh, it's it's an important decision for working people For jobs, for our national economy that we're hearing about today, and say many thanks to our federal government for finding a way to get there. Did you want to answer the question? We'll take one last question from the
21: floor, from the press, please, who are here to ask questions. And we're
6: we are taking questions from the press who are running out of time here. Thank you very much.
19: Uh, Penny Thank Thank you. A lot of people are not going to be clearly satisfied with the process and with the decision made here. They're threatening protests, they're already threatening legal action.
5: How are you going to respond to them? Do
6: you want me to answer it? I I will say, um, just like Site C, which is a clean energy project which is going to benefit our children for a generation with low-cost clean energy, um, in an era where we are, people are getting um, hungry for clean energy, um, it is impossible to move ahead with a major economic project that has 100% support. But I will say with respect to this project, we've worked for five years with First Nations and communities around the north. Um, and uh, we've worked on uh, economic benefit agreements, employment agreements, ensuring that uh, First Nations are a part of ensuring uh, environmental sustainability. And as a result of that work, we have received not unanimous, but overwhelming support from First Nations and other communities around the country. And I think at some time, governments need to lead. And for us, leadership means moving ahead on projects that are going to be environmentally sound and benefit the people of British Columbia and ensure that we're creating jobs and looking after the middle class in our province.
21: All right, we'll have time for two brief questions from the phone. I think this is a really important question. and, and Catherine thank you, McKenna, uh, thank our you for local MP, Environment uh, Minister, answering questions as they, they announced the approval of the LNG and pipeline I in British Columbia in January. A very important principle was meaningfully consulting and accommodating, uh, uh, accommodating Indigenous peoples' concerns. And I hear concerns here around the salmon. That was a significant concern for me. It was a significant concern for my colleagues. So we took the time that was required. We took three additional months. Some people were not happy about that because we really wanted to understand the impact on a very important fishery where many Indigenous peoples rely on the salmon. Uh, And in terms of the consultation with Indigenous peoples, uh, from the very start we engaged with the Indigenous communities that were right around the project. We provided significant funding to enable them to participate in the project. We used traditional knowledge. There were concerns raised around uh, the marine area, uh, and we took those concerns on board, uh, and we looked at ways that we could address them. Uh, We have this innovative monitoring committee uh, with the communities uh, around the project, the the major communities, the main communities around the project, including the... Catherine
1: McKenna, the Environment Minister, uh, answering questions out in Richmond, British Columbia, where they've announced the approval of a pipeline to carry liquefied natural gas to the BC coast. Same BC Coast, as I keep pointing out, that they said can't have an oil pipeline go to it because that those waters are no place for a tanker. Hmm. Explain the difference to me. Five two one talk five two one eight two five five star five eighty on bell mobility. The people calling in for the hockey contest will be cleared away in a moment. Right now let's go to Eric In Sandy Hill, Eric's calling in about bilingualism.
10: How are you?
1: Doing well. What are your thoughts on the city becoming officially bilingual and entrenching it in law?
20: Uh, I am all for it, basically because I am Mm -hmm. Um, Franco-Ontarian. A lot of people seem to forget that the city is built off both Francophones and Anglophones. We Francophones have been here as long as the Anglophones. Absolutely. And on my side, I'm here talking to you in English. So I had to adjust as a francophone Go a French school and learn English. I mean, if I want to survive, get a job in Ottawa, you, you kind of need English. You don't need as French as much, but I'm glad I can get services and, and talk to people in French, whether I go to the store or it's the government building. I, I just don't understand why me as a francophone, I wouldn't have the same right as you as an anglophone. It, it just makes sense to make it official. Why would I be denied <laughs> when I've been here as long as, you have
1: how does making it official change the service that you would get well, from the, the city
20: the, the the argument that i liked was that by making it official we know it's always going to be there a, a new government could step in and say hey we're wiping it we're not going to have francophone services anymore and here we are with with more of,
1: than a quarter of the population
20: well you never know i'm just saying that making it official ensures it's going to stay i don't see the downside like, at all it, it, it's it, just it, ensuring that for me as a francophone i can i can still get services in french and I don't need to convert to English when French is my mother tongue.
1: All right. Do you understand my concerns where when you make it official, and and let's face it, the people pushing this want it to be like the federal system. At that point, the federal system, we spend billions on bilingualism, and a good chunk of it has nothing to do with offering you or any other Francophone across the country services in French. It is about dealing with report after report on the inner workings of government and is French spoken enough at meetings and uh are, are there enough people who want to be supervised in this language or that language, it becomes it, it it's a bureaucracy unto itself that we really don't need to replicate at at the city level. I would wow. I would defend to the end, Eric. The right for you to walk into any city office and be served in French. Absolutely. And you're right. Francophones have been here as long as Anglophones. Probably longer, actually, if you look at um, expo- exploration and uh, settlement patterns and so on. But do we do we need that extra bureaucracy, or do we have a system that already works to provide you the services that you need?
20: I, I, I agree with you. We don't need the extra bureaucracy. I've seen it happen. But, but at work. That, that's friend. what
1: will happen.
20: Well, I, if we put I think it into just, law, don't you think it's a bit of fear mongering? I mean, it's it's kind of like, oh, everybody's not going to be able to apply and get jobs. You're going to have to be francophone 100 percent. I don't necessarily think making it making an official will replicate the federal system on the, at the city level. Uh, I, I, I'm with you. I find it uh, uh, pointless and, and stupid to have. You must be bilingual when the position doesn't right, require you to speak French. Uh, so I, I'm with you in that sense. But in the same argument. Uh, francophone should need to speak english to get that job uh, also so to me we're in the same boat whether you're francophone or french it, it doesn't need you don't need to have both to get a job and i'm sure that making it official although could lead some to push for that we could also push back against that including me as a uh, francophone I,
1: I i i really highly doubt that we would be successful uh if it goes into into law, I think that it would just be taken over by tribunals and courts, and elected officials would end up having no say. Uh, I, I, I think that, that if, functionally, if doesn't, I like think
20: Brian, if, if it doesn't go into law, what if, if my francophone rights go away? Like, what would then? I I'll fight for them.
1: I will sit here on these airwaves and fight for you to be served in French and, at at City Hall or the community right center.
20: It needs to be served. You need to be served in English. English, like English, is the the, the uh, let's call it the primary language for the city. Uh, you've got that. It's already locked in. Like, we just want to make sure French is also.
1: And, I mean, and, imagine and, if all of a
20: sudden it was French and uh, German. That wouldn't go, that wouldn't fly, right? Well, we, we have a Francophone and Anglophone community in Ottawa. Why not treat them both the same? Let's look, just have I, equal rights. Uh,
1: believe me, I understand where you're coming from, Eric. I've watched it be stripped away, but it was English in Montreal because when they did the municipal mergers in Montreal, I left Ottawa. Uh, I was working for the city of Nepean. The mergers had my job all up in the air. I ended up taking a job in Montreal in radio. And I watched the municipal mergers go there. And the Parti Quebecois actually changed the law to strip away Anglo rights because there were a bunch of bilingual suburbs. That was part of their reason for wanting to get rid of it. And also, like in Ottawa, it was to bail out the bankrupt city in the core. But they changed the law on what qualified you as an Anglophone because they have legal definitions. It's very creepy. Uh, and also they changed the threshold for when you could. Not not uh, if you wanted to, but you were only legally allowed to if the threshold of Anglos was above a certain level. So I've watched it be stripped away, and it was disgusting. And I'll tell you something, the same liberal MPs like Martin Cochon, Jean Chrétien, and all those others that stood and, and demanded that the Montfort not be closed, they represented those areas they refused to speak up on this, and and it was disgusting to watch. So I understand where you're coming from, and I would fight for it if someone tried that. But my, mm-hmm. I just don't see the point of replicating a system that costs us a lot of money but doesn't provide you with a single second of extra service or better service or anything else. It's just about helping the, the workers on the inside.
20: We, we know that... Quebec is a disaster overall, and uh, on many levels. I'm a proud Franco-Ontarian. We can learn from these mistakes done with the Anglophone in Montreal, in Quebec, and make it better. I mean, the reason federal is this way is because of Quebec. Quebec wants the the French represented at the federal level, and that's why it's a disaster, like la loi Saint-Erin, et cetera. I mean, we can learn from this. We can make it whatever we want it to be. Let's just make it official to a certain degree so that I know that my kids and grandkids and whoever else can be served in French. We'll never be afraid that it will disappear. All
1: right. Well, I appreciate the call and uh, the respectful back and forth. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Do you have thoughts on any of this? Call now. Phone lines will be opened right there. There we go. Stephen's opening the phone lines. You can call. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments.
0: You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
1: Tomorrow, there will be a news conference where Mark Mayrand, the outgoing... Uh, had Honcho over at Elections Canada, a man that has built up a an empire at that organization. He's going to talk to reporters about his report to Parliament on changing the electoral system. He's going to say that voter ID cards, those little cards we get in the mail telling us where to vote, that they should be an acceptable form of ID. I've just shared a story within the last hour on Facebook and on Twitter about dead people and non-citizens getting non-citizens, 57,000 of them, getting voter ID cards in the last election. You can check it out on social media. Uh, let's go to Brian in Canada, calling in about bilingualism. Brian, you're on the air.
4: Hi, Brian. Um, you know, the, the way it was that the, when they tore down the, the flats because, uh, because they were going to build all these government buildings there. Mm-hmm. In uh, and but they uh, made a deal with Quebec. Quebec was supposed to become bilingual. Eh? Trudeau had made a deal with them, and uh, <laughs> they built all those buildings or keep building buildings over there. And we're still paying. We're paying. They're paying so much money to for uh, like like me. I don't, like I didn't want uh, uh, you know like because I don't speak French.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: I don't want to pay for the French channels, but I got no choice.
1: But you know? how do you feel about the city going officially bilingual?
4: That's that's not right. Look at it, the ethnic cleansing. They drove all the English out of Quebec.
1: There, There's a town in uh, southern Ontario called Burlington that until 1976 was pretty sleepy. Now it's filled with uh, expat Montrealers.
4: I know. <laughs> that's what I said. You know, the... the <laughs> This is what they're doing. They're just t- slowly yeah. taking over, and it's costing us billions.
1: I, I fully support providing French services. I don't support uh, official bilingualism at the city level.
4: You know, those, uh, like, the mechanic books and all that, that's got to be translated into French. And they're going to become in English. You know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's a waste of money.
1: Yeah, absolutely everything. Thanks for the call, Brian. Thanks. Make sure you call your counselor and let them know how you feel. Let's go to Richard in Ottawa. Richard, you're on Beyond the News.
9: Yeah, for me, this uh, bilingualism in the city of Ottawa, Mm
1: -hmm.
9: uh, I am totally in agreement with you. I think that the moment that you make uh, French uh, officially uh, bilingual, I think that you then need to regulate it, and that's where the problem comes in, right? It's the regulation and the control and... You know, having to and then, then you're, you're 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 tracking. Uh, it's a tracking system of who does what and who can speak what and and who's officially bilingual and who wasn't and and you know who can who can offer the courses. How many employees are? I mean, just look at how many employees of the federal government are off on on leave because they're taking a three month course. Well, well, they're not doing their job while they're getting that course. Uh, well, it'd be a nine month course,
1: course, Richard. Nine months. I I know one guy was out for two years
9: and oh well a friend of mine's been out for longer than that because the uh he keeps failing the course and so what happens is he keeps getting sending this, uh, uh, sent back to the course over and over again the cost is astronomical because once it's officially bilingual it's the control of it that's the problem and yeah. and Right now, it's 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 relatively simple. As I agree with you, we need to provide a certain level of it, and we and 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 the city of Ottawa is. And so, to me, it's ideal the way it is now. I I would hate to see it have to uh, to, to become uh, officially bilingual.
1: Thanks for the call, Richard. Thank you. Let's go to Guy, the Capital Voice, calling in about the debate last night.
8: Well, there's rumors swirling. Everywhere, Brian, that you were on a date last night, and I want to interview you for a change and uh, tell us <laughs> about your date last My night date? with the snowman traveling between two rooms. Inquiring minds want to know.
1: Yeah, I might have been in the same place as Rob Snow to watch the debate. More, we were just down at uh, at the Fox and Feather and uh, enjoying the uh, the debate. I was told that uh, there were a bunch of conservatives down there, so I wandered down, and then I walked in the door, and there's a giant sign for the Young Liberals of Canada. <laughs> I thought I was in the wrong room. Funny. I was. I had to go upstairs to find the people I was looking for. But um, your quick thoughts. we got a minute left, Guy.
8: You didn't do the drinking game, though, did you? I,
1: I You know, I was trying to establish what the rules were, yeah, but I got there just as the debate was starting, so I couldn't yeah. figure out— when, when it, did find you drink? I
8: interesting that that uh, official bilingualism thing is rearing its ugly head. And Matthew Flurry, oh, it's only symbolic. It's everything.
1: If it's only symbolic, you know, then why do why it? it?
8: And you know what kills me? This comes from a group of people that basically uh, banished English rights just across the border, and they cry foul over here. It is the ultimate in hypocrisy.
1: Well, Franco Ontarians you know? are are different than than Quebecers. Well, they're
8: not, Brian. Yeah, they this are. Is a country where if you're going to have an official, no, Fran-
1: Franco Ontarians have a very different view. Of an awful lot of things than Quebecers oh, they're do. They're
8: distinct, too, are they, Brian?
1: <laughs> Guy, got to no, leave serious, it there.
8: I'm serious, Brian. How can you, as, a, as a, a country that says we're united and diverse and all this bull caca, basically take my rights away and not allow me to put up an English sign... In, in, if it's in, a, in an English neighborhood in Quebec, and then come over here and basically ask it to be put into law, that your it, language should be in law, and you basically strip me of my rights when I drive across a bridge. You ever seen a, an English trucker go over to Quebec as soon as they see a, an Ontario plate, Brian? It's like the Gestapo
1: over well, there. Well, it's, it's even worse for, uh, for trades folks there. Got to wrap it there, Guy. Thanks for the call. We'll be back tomorrow. By the way, Christopher Nash in Limoges was our latest qualifier. Your next chance to get in 7.35 tomorrow. Make sure you go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Share that story about dead people and non-citizens getting voter ID cards. Spread the word before Mark Mayran's horrible idea takes root. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm on your side.